Just wanted to give a quick content warning. There is going to be discussions of sexual violence against children uh, with regards to this book. It's fictional. We don't go into super detail, um, but it is also a sort of essential part of the plot. So we will be discussing it somewhat. So just be aware. When you get into a relationship, you're also buying into that, right? Like you're you're willing to be care murder for the other person. You, you're willing to be caretaker <laughs> for the other person. You're willing to do you know. You, there's a mutual sort of like willing to drain somebody of yeah, their blood for them. Exactly. There's a symbiotic <laughs> relationship that's created. episode 239 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss John Ajvide Lindquist's 2004 novel, Let the Right One In. Well, here we are, James, with what was one of the darkest novels we've covered, probably up there with American Psycho, I think, as far as just like the most intense... uh, transgressive and extreme detail uh, for, for a lot of what was going on here. And I'm curious, honestly, I'm, I'm really interested to see what you what you ended up thinking of it. But, but before you even give me that, I'm, I want to know what your experience is with Let the Right One In. Have you have you seen the movie? I've seen both of the movies. Yeah, but it's been long enough to where I definitely don't remember the Swedish version. I think I remember more of the American version, but a couple scenes cropped up in the in the story here that I brought me back and I was like, OK, that definitely takes place. It definitely is up there in terms of uh, subject material that's just like hard to read in, in cases and yeah. and going to like the underbelly of humanity and seeing like what the worst possible minds are like. And in some ways reminds me of some of the darkest shit that Stephen King gets into, right? Yeah, I definitely thought of Stephen King a lot while reading this. You're in the mind of like a murderer at times, or in this case, a pedophile, like that, yeah. like that kind of stuff. And it becomes increasingly harder to read. Not even just that character, but many of the characters in the story. There's not a lot of hope in the story. There is, I think there is a glimmer, but a lot of it is just like oppressive darkness in this story. Yeah, I mean, this is a, there's sort of a bleakness and a, a nihilism and a, a sort of existential despair that pervades this novel. That reminds me of a lot of crime fiction that comes out of like Norway and Sweden and this area. I've seen some of that stuff. And it seems like that is a popular mode of storytelling over there. And it's one that does appeal to me. Like I I definitely have like a grim, dark, you know, goth, like existential despair kind of side to me. Um, It comes into my writing sometimes. And I definitely enjoy stories like this. Um, And this one is, yeah, very extreme. It it goes to similar places that you said, like uh, that Stephen King sometimes goes. And I think what makes it similar to his work is that John Lindquist, we're going to probably mess up the name a little bit. Like I, I've heard it pronounced many of the names. Yeah, I've heard it pronounced. I've heard many of these names pronounced, but like my mouth struggles to make the sounds. So I'm trying, but it's tough. Um, but he uh, he writes these characters, the ones you're talking about, who who are some of the worst people and like they, they, they have a depravity to them and they're, 
they're fucked up, but like he writes them with empathy and he writes them in a way that tries to understand them and not necessarily judge them. It's more just like represent who they are and, um, you know, sort of the complex sides to them. And, and that in and of itself is transgressive. And some people are going to really balk at, right? Like, I don't want to read about a pedophile in a way that isn't like completely condemning him, but this book isn't like that really. Like it, it, it shows his own guilt he feels about it. And, but like also the sides of him that are, I don't know, more, more caring and, um, conflicted and, I don't know. It's, he's a, it's actually a really interesting character, even though he does some really fucked up stuff and, and seeing his mind is quite frightening. Yeah. This like unflinching realism. Yeah. We hear about this stuff in the news and we hear about these types of people being arrested and rightfully so. And it's just like to, to get into these characters is to like view the world in a realistic way but then also seed it with some supernatural elements in the story. Yeah. And then the way that those are handled in a, in sort of a unique way to a vampire story to, to kind right. of spoil what's going on here is a, there's a vampire. I think most people probably get that this is a vampire story. We are going to try and stay pretty spoiler free here. I guess we've also mentioned that there's a main pedophile character, but yeah. as far as like what gets on with that, I think that's actually good as just like a... Uh, disclaimer if you're thinking about reading this book or watching this movie to know that this is the kind of stuff that's in there just so you can be aware um, before we get into the details uh, about what happens and, and actually start spoiling the story the way that he approaches his vampire characters as well and and like there's like a realism to even and like a grounded vampire oh for sure and, and he's not the only one who's done this i mean but taking it and tying it to everything we just talked about and the way it plays into that um, is is really interesting, and it does make this book feel different, and it does a very difficult thing in telling a well-worn trope. You know, you go to the vampire well, it's like there's so many of these stories out there, and to write a novel about that that feels different is a challenge. And to me, this one does. Now, it was written in 2004, so it's worth noting that this is already 18 years old now, um, so not to say that if something were to come out like this now, it would actually feel different because now we've had this has been out for a long time and there's yeah. been even more of this kind of stuff. It does feel like a story that's doing something unique in the space, though, for sure, like taking that archetypal vampire and, you know, this idea of vampires typically being seen as monsters or there are there are plenty of sympathetic vampire stories, but then also threading in that realism of actual real world monsters and then like comparing the two and saying, like, is it really that bad to try to survive as a vampire when all these other things are going on in our world? And, and you know, it's almost like if we could just like shift our perspective, vampires, if, if they had always existed and they weren't some supernatural entity and it was like sort of the, that was the food chain we would see it as nature or something like it was right it's just a part of life that you know so they got to survive like everybody else kind of thing before we get into discussing the author what was your at like how do you feel about this book uh, i know you've seen the movie but like the book does go into a lot more detail gets a lot more in the mind um there's some subplots that got removed from the films um and I want to know, like, ultimately, like, do you enjoy this kind of book? Um, were you able to read it in a way that you were like, yeah, this is the kind of thing I'd like to read? Or were you like, I don't think this is for me? I just want to know, like, where you're at subjectively. With yeah, it. subjectively, like, personal preference wise, I think this book is amazing. I think it's great. But I felt like there were definitely scenes that I could have done with without, without. There are yeah. a few scenes that I was like, not that it went too far for me or I was squeamish or anything like that, but it just 
something about I was and I was remembering some of the simplified nature of the film and I think I appreciated it for that there's just some scenes that we I guess we can get into where I was like this this is a little unnecessary and I get that it's really really building in some of the depravity in some of these characters well squeamishness like feeling squeamish that's something that I think the author was trying to evoke right like he's appealing to emotions if you even want to call them that or like physiological responses in the reader and some of those are revulsion and disgust and squeak. Like, that's all something I think he's trying to evoke. So it's not necessarily a miss on his part, but it is also like, do I want to experience that while reading? <laughs> right. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm picking up on. Maybe it's more of that. I loved this the setting for this vampire story. Yeah. Early 80s Sweden. And it's in like the suburbs outside of Stockholm, I believe. And, and I'm unfamiliar with that. It's very new to me. I'm not it's not a setting that I'm accustomed to. And then it's almost like new new development that's popped up. And so there's like and they could describe like there's not a lot of history and it just feels like devoid of like you know, uh, humanity a little bit. And it kind of matched a lot of the characters. And I, I, I thought that was a really cool setting. And, and I could it just like I felt myself living in that space. It was a very well realized world. Yeah, I mean, and and I think he's an excellent writer. And, you know, obviously, we're reading a translation here. Um, but I think it comes across well, there's, you know, rich description. Um, it does remind me a lot as far as, as style goes uh, to a Stephen King. Um, I even saw a, I can't remember which critic it was, but somebody said that he was the Swedish Stephen King. It was very clear to me that there was like someone like this probably read Stephen King. and was like, I want to write like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he has lots of other influences, but I think that is definitely one of them. And we have Stephen King show up a few times as far as like, uh, references within the book. Um, he's the, our main character, Oscar is reading Firestarter. Mm-hmm. Um, Which I haven't read, and I'm like vaguely familiar with the story. I haven't read either. I am somewhat familiar with the story, but I know it's a Stephen King novel, and I know it's about like a super powered girl, um, a la Carrie, but different. So, um, I think there's, a, I think he's deliberately drawing on that, right? Like a, a powered child, and this is a book that our our character wants to read because this is a, this is a character who wants power and doesn't have any. I think. Um, I think that's part of sort of Oscar's journey. Um, but I think that 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 opens the door to some stuff that I was picking up on early on where the author was sort of asking a question through other characters about horror in general. And there were some lines early on where it was like, why do people read this stuff? I can't believe you read this stuff. Like is his mother judging him and the way that he like fantasizes and has violent fantasies and there's sort of this implication that maybe like the effect on society is bad. Um, but that's put forward by other people who don't seem to understand it. And then you have like our main character, Oscar, who loves this stuff. Um, but I think it's like the the book is kind of asking that question. And I don't think it really answers. I think it, I think it is sort of putting that out there going like, maybe this is bad, which is interesting in a meta way, because this book is itself such a transgressive boundary pushing horror novel that you could totally level those accusations at this book. And I think that's sort of a lampshade. Like, yeah, I know that this book is is going to draw criticism from people who say, you shouldn't write a book like that because it's going to have a negative effect on people. Um, at, where do you where do you land on that? Like, how do you feel about this kind of stuff? You know, we've, we've talked many times about how, like, you write the story and then the audience or that you're, everyone in general just, like, takes it and it, it, it takes on a life of its own. So I feel like if if there's a story to be, I don't think you should shy away from writing a story you want to write for those reasons. Can the author be blamed for, you know, wanting to write this and 
and show like the realism and like I don't know. <laughs> and showing what humanity can be like in, in its worst yeah. moments, you know? Yeah. I mean, when you look at like American Psycho, we had some similar conversations about that. Like, should, is that book worth it? Like, as I, I've even heard about since we covered that project, um, a couple of serial killers, um, I think they're the Ken and Barbie killers. Can't remember who they, what their actual names are. Um, but they had a copy of American Psycho and would like read it and like love the book and, and used it as like an inspiration for a lot of real m- murders they did. It, clearly, uh, you know, missing the intention of the story. Right. And not that's not the intention of uh, uh, Ellis who wrote it. Right. It's, uh, um, but it did happen. Uh, <laughs> and so I don't know. It, this is an ongoing big conversation. I just feel like it, it is sort of baked into covering something like this that is so extreme and has such uh, transgressive material. Um, I guess I'll, I'll weigh in kind of where I'm at with it. Um, I did really like this book. Um, this is my, I think, my second time reading it. So I'm pretty sure I read this book about 15, 16 years ago. Um, but I don't remember good parts of it. So I, I think, I don't know if I finished it. I might have been borrowing a copy from someone, and maybe I didn't get all the way through it. I'm not sure. And I've seen both movies. So because of that, whenever that happens and I'm able to approach something where I, I'm not as like caught up in the twists and turns of the story. Although, like I said, there was a lot I didn't remember. So, you know, I was a little bit. But like I'm able to analyze it more in like a different way. Like as someone who is looking under the hood of a car and trying to figure out how it works. And so I'm looking at this novel from a writing point of view. I've also matured a lot as a writer um, since, you know, 15 years ago when I would have read it. So I have a whole different perspective on it now. Um, and ultimately, like, I think there is always going to be a a place for fairly extreme horror that pushes the boundaries and is transgressive. Um, you know, you'll see that in body horror sometimes. You'll see that in all different, there's certain genres, subgenres of horror that are very extreme. I don't know that this would even fall into extreme horror. Like, some people might quibble with that because... I don't know if there's, like, enough of that stuff for, for it to really qualify. I don't know. I'm not, like, an expert in these subgenres. But to me, this is pretty extreme. In artistic expression, there always has to be room for stuff that makes majority of people uncomfortable. Um, I think that that can serve a good purpose. And I think it could sort of shine a light on a part of society that we'd rather just close away and not think about. And if we do think about it, like... Just think of it as wrong and bad and have no empathy for it and have no um, understanding of it. Whereas I think this book tries to understand some stuff and like provide some insight into that world, um, which to me seems to have some value in and of itself. All that being said, I think there's a good chance a lot of people, you know, are hurt by this book if they read it. And um, maybe it causes some real world world harm. Maybe it inspires some people to do some terrible shit. I don't know. Um, And that's ultimately on the author, and that's something that they have to judge within themselves if they're okay with that. Like, is that something I'm okay creating art that has the potential to do that? Um, And that is something that I think is going to come down to the the author and ultimately to the filmmakers, although I I would argue that the the novel has a higher potential for that just because of how much more in-depth it goes on a lot of this stuff. and so, yeah, like, I don't think I'd personally ever be able to do a lot of this, like, write something like this, but I'm also not going to condemn 
um, the author for doing it. And, um, you know, I'd be curious to hear him talk about this kind of stuff and like if he has thoughts on that, because uh, it seems like he's gone on to write a lot of horror like this. Um, this is the kind of stuff people ask Stephen King about all the time. And for whatever reason, it just felt like he was taking it, you know, a couple steps farther than even Stephen King often yeah. does. It did feel like he was an extent, like a continuation. You know, if Stephen King was pushing the boundary in the 70s, 80s and 90s and, you know, continuing it today, today, clearly. But this person, you know, maybe trying to be the next Stephen King, if he has that that title from sweet, the Swedish Stephen King or whatever. I don't know if that's something he wants or not, but. I mean, I don't I don't think if you're a horror writer, you're going to push against that. Right. But trying to go a step farther and like, you know, push, especially in like 2004, like I can kind of see the world, like remember the world of 2004 and like what edgy and like going really far could be. Well, there there's always a, a component of horror that is transgressive and boundary pushing. And I think in order for horror to operate in the way that authors want it to, where it, it it's like you can't believe, as you're reading it, like you, you can't believe what you're reading, right? Like you want that feeling. And I think authors know that people are getting jaded and they've read all this other stuff. So that I think there's going to be a natural progression where you're pushing the envelope further and further to try and achieve the same shock that uh, you know your readers, you have to go to a certain level to get there um, to shock them. And then horror, you know, is obviously always, almost always a social commentary, right? So like whatever society is kind of going through in order to to evolve with the culture and kind of reflect that, I think horror has to kind of see what's going on and what people are having to deal with. And then, and then kind of bring that to the forefront, bring these horrors to light. Yeah, man. Uh, so I think we need to like get into the book itself so we can start talking about specifics. Um, and we're going to let's talk about the author and then we'll give our, our sort of recommendations, I guess, on like whether or not people who've seen the movie should check this book out. But yeah, let's first let's talk about the author. There's not a lot I was able to find about him, but I was able to find a little bit. So Jean Ajvide Lindquist was born in 1968. He was born and raised in Stockholm um, and specifically the suburb of Blackbird, which is where this story is set. So he, he set this in like his hometown. He worked for 12 years as a stand-up comedian and also spent time as a stage magician, which, okay, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, he's got some range. Yeah, also like a natural storyteller. I think there is actually some overlap with, you know, magi- being a magician and also uh, definitely with, with being a stand-up. Like, there's some natural um, sort of storytelling and performance that goes along here that, that you do see transfer into writing. What's interesting is I did not think this book was very funny. Uh, there was very little humor in it. And to know that someone's like worked as a stand-up comedian for that long and then the, ha- writes a fairly humorless novel is is interesting. I think we all know that like comics, I, I think everybody has a lot of facets to themselves. There's a real darkness there. <laughs> there's a, maybe too much rhetoric around that, like, oh, yeah, yeah. they're so tortured and all this stuff. But, but There's some know. truth to it. So, yeah, this is his debut novel, which... Very impressive. This is a very impressive debut novel. Um, came out in 2004, and it enjoyed great success in Sweden. Um, it would later uh, make its way over to the States, and it would be renamed Let Me In. Um, I think I read that American publishers thought that the title was a little confusing or too long, and so they thought that Let Me In was better. They wanted to rename it to uh, Let Her In at one point, but he pushed against that because he felt like it was too limiting and changed the meaning behind the title also the title is a reference to a song by morrissey called let the right one slip in 
which I don't know Morrissey very well. I know this is it's a name I know, but I, I don't feel like I've listened to Morrissey much. Um, are you familiar with Morrissey? I've heard, yeah, I've heard the the name. I'm I'm not familiar either. Okay. Well, apparently, uh, Lundquist is a big Morrissey fan, and uh, Morrissey's music has become involved in a lot of his different books over the years, including quotes from songs and references. So um, that's a pretty big part uh, of his writing. So he also has released multiple novels, um, including 2005. He wrote a book about zombies called Handling the Undead. Um, and he wrote another book called Paper Walls, which was published in English as Let the Old Dreams Die, um, which was a collection of his short stories. And then, yeah, it looks like he's got a pretty big, I'm looking through his bibliography, he's got a, a pretty good number of novels on here. Um, he also was a writer for the television series Rooter and Skoog, which was in 1999. It looks like maybe a Swedish film he wrote a screenplay for. So he's been involved a lot in you know, the Swedish film industry, it looks like, and then um, publishing over there. And I, I did see some interesting stuff about the um, path that Let the Right One In took to adaptation, but I think we'll save that for next week when we actually talk about the film. Um, and you can maybe look a little more into that and the potential for another new adaptation of it that's coming down the pike. Um, seems to still be happening. I did hear that, yeah, there's there's one that's supposed to release this year, so that's something to look forward to. Um, so one thing I, I will note here, and this isn't the kind of stuff I typically talk about a, t- a ton with like living authors, but I think it's interesting in that it, it appears to crop up in his work and in this novel itself. I think it's worth talking about. His father drowned when, when he was pretty young, and the sea has appeared in several of his works as a dark and sinister force, um, and people have noted that uh, it plays a prominent role and can be considered the the main villain in some of his novels. Um, and then within Let the Right One In, um, there is a pivotal near-drowning scene. And there's a couple of parts I remember, like a frozen lake and falling through the ice and mentions of drowning. Um, so it seems like this is a thing that motif that comes up a lot in his work. So um, that seems to be drawing from his own life. And I wanted to say, like, speaking of all of that... <laughs> Um, if you wanted to try and psychoanalyze the author um, based off of this novel, I think there's a lot you could try and use. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know how valuable that is. Um, you know, people have been trying to do it to like Stephen King for years. Like, oh, you must be like a psychopath. Like, look at the stuff you've written about. Um, but I think there is some truth to like at least figuring out the kinds of things someone wants to, to analyze and talk about. Are, are they trying to sort of excise certain, not, not, not parts of themselves, but maybe like right through traumas they've experienced and um, work, the, work through different moments in their life by fictionalizing it? That is a thing that authors do, and it could be what's going on here, at least in some sense, but we don't know. And it's, I don't know how much he's revealed if he's gone through certain traumas. Um, I think there's like you could read this as a exploration of gender and sexuality um, in a way. And like, is this something that he struggles with himself? I don't know. Um, And ultimately, I want to put it out there as like that's something you could do. You could try and analyze the author. But ultimately, I don't think that's something we're going to try and do. And I'm in the camp of just because an author is like writing what they know. You know, this is a debut novel. He said it in the town that he grew up in. There's clearly some things going on here, but it doesn't take away the magic of the story for me when I know that that's happening. Like, I I don't know. Part of me thinks that there's people out there that see it as like, oh, he just wrote his own story. How easy is that? And like, there's something that that 
is missed there with regard to craft and actually executing on a vision and and you know making something that people relate to and, and like so if if that is something that's going on like whether people bring in things from their own lives or not if the story if it serves the story and and I it's a you know satisfying journey then like I'm all for it yeah so one other thing I will add before we get into the plot itself is that there was a short story titled Let the Old Dreams Die that does explore some of the events that occur after this novel. So if you are curious about reading more, um, that's something you could potentially check out. Do you think people who have seen this movie should be seeking out this book to read? Um, is it is it is it worth doing? I am the curious type to where I would tend to say yes. Like if you're someone like me who's interested in knowing about the source and knowing what it's like, yes. But with the caveat of if some of the more extreme parts of this film uh, were turnoffs for you, I do not suggest it. In my memory of the film, it doesn't go nearly as deep into some of the, the, you know, more extreme things in this story. So if you're someone who wants to experience a story that kind of has no holds barred, like sort of realistic to life and, and the unfair nature of it and the way that um, some of these things do happen, like seek it out. If if that sounds like something you're not interested in, definitely don't check it out. <laughs> That's fair. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think I do recommend it. Um, I think if you're a big fan of this movie, you're probably going to be okay with most of the stuff that goes on in the book. Um, just, yeah, maybe be aware that it is a little more in-depth and intense. And we're, we're in the minds of these characters, whereas on the f- in the film, like, it's just different seeing stuff play out. Um, I think you can film film stuff in a way that shows empathy, but like nothing quite like being in the mind and, and like hearing the character explain their actions to themselves and right. justify what they're doing to themselves, which is what we get a lot of. And going with the, the what you were speaking on, and it's just that like the author, the intention of the author is to make you feel uncomfortable. So be yeah. be ready for that. And, you know, you can always put it down if it, if it seems like it's getting to be too much. Yeah. But ultimately, like I... I did have a good time reading it. Um, I I do enjoy this kind of stuff to an extent. I don't think this isn't the kind of thing I would want to read all the time, but uh, every now and then. It's definitely something I wanted to say. Like, I I like this. I remember liking the film a lot. I like this story, but in no way is this my favorite type of horror. It's it's just not. It's like like I said before, there's not a lot of hope in the story. Like it has it has less to do with that and more to do with the, the nature of the storytelling is just so extreme. It's not one of my favorite horror stories, but I did love the journey. Yeah, you know, and I think you are touching on something that might explain some of this. In order to justify writing a vampire novel, he might have felt pressure to make it as extreme as possible, to make it stand out, because I think you would worry that you're going to you're gonna touch on, you know, the Anne Rice territory that's well-trodden. Um, it, there's lots of these vampire stories that have come up over time, and to really want to say, I'm going to write a different kind Uh, Let's get into the actual plot. So in 1981, Blackburg, Stockholm, Oscar is a 12-year-old boy who lives with his mother, who is loving and with whom he initially seems to have a close connection. His father, whom Oscar visits occasionally, is an alcoholic living in the countryside. A victim of merciless bullying, Oscar has gained morbid interests, which include crime and forensics. He keeps a scrapbook filled with newspaper articles about murders. One day, he befriends Elay, a girl of about the same age, who just moved in next door. She lives with an older man named Hawken, 
a former teacher who was fired when caught in possession of child pornography. He doesn't know this at the time. She's revealed to be a vampire who has turned as a child and is stuck forever in a young body and mind. Oscar and Eli develop a close relationship, and she helps him fight back against his tormentors. Throughout the book, their relationship gradually becomes closer, and they reveal more of themselves, including fragments of Eli's human life. Among the details revealed is that Eli is a boy named Elias, who was castrated when he was turned into a vampire over 200 years ago. He dresses in female clothing and is perceived by outsiders as a young girl. Okay, so we got to talk about this right off the bat. That's the reason I included this part in the summary here, because we're going to get a switch in pronouns. Uh, I'm going to start referring to Eli as he. That's what the book does um, after this reveal. But this reveal actually happens pretty late in the novel. Um, and I don't know how to feel about this. I don't know how like trans people would feel about it. I don't know, you know, any of that. I mean, we spoke before the recording and I was telling you, I don't, even at the end of the story, I don't know what the character identifies as. So I feel uncomfortable gendering. Right. And that's the question, right? Like what, what does Ile identify with? And we don't really know because it goes back and forth and maybe, maybe he doesn't have one, but maybe he's okay either way. Um, but we don't get that discussed. It's more like the, it feels like the narration is making a choice. The narration is choosing to view Ile as a she. And then once the reveal happens, the narration decides to switch and refer to Ile as a he. Um, and I don't know if that is like inherently a problem. For, it might be. It probably is. But that is how it's dealt with in this book. Right. So, so for the sake of uh, just clarity i think we're going to be referring to Eli as a he and hope that that's not harmful yeah i might actually because i feel like i don't know this is less clear in the movies so there's also i have like some ling like lingering movie stuff okay so wow there's a lot there to talk about right like uh the introduction of these characters um oscar let's talk with let's, let's start out with oscar right he's our he's our main character he's who we probably spend the most time with he is a victim of vicious bullying. This feels very Stephen King to me. Yes. Right? Like the, these, these boys who just viciously, you know, chase him and beat him and make him do this like thing where he squeals like a pig. And mm -hmm. um, there's this game he talks about where he's essentially the the prey and they're the, the predators and he's, he's like playing his role. It seems like he, he has these like dreams about power and wishing he had it and they manifest in his fascination with like, as it describes in this summary, like morbid things like horror and true crime where he studied a lot of this and he like, was really interested in these killers so much so that we see him fantasizing about stabbing his bullies. And that's where I think it deviates from like a Stephen King character to it, to a degree. I think you can definitely see maybe the antagonist of a story or, or a character who maybe starts the protagonist becomes the antagonist uh, in a Stephen King story doing this. But here, that was interesting for me because the, our, our protagonist, our main character so far, is basically like wishing for murder, wishing yeah. to murder. Well, it's it's written in a way that actually makes it unclear whether or not he is actually murdering somebody because Hawken, who is like one of our other main characters, he's also introduced very early and we don't know much about him from the beginning. Like it's described that he was this former teacher and all this stuff, but that happens way later in the book that we find this out. First thing we get is him 
he's got this guy kind of moralizing he's doing is he's looking around and he sees like advertisements with people like bearing their skin and he's like oh this is this is making society you know perverted and like he he's like kind of judging that but he feel he seems like he is he's got something that he feels like he has to do and he really doesn't want to do it and um he's like waiting and we get the sense that like it's not good whatever he's going to do and he's waiting for a victim and then at one point a, a child goes by and he's like like a young i think a young girl um but he's like no never never someone that young or something so he like says no and then but he does end up i think a, a attacking like a a young boy who's like 14 or 15 i think ends up being the victim and he is attacking this boy and i think he uh, drugs him uh and drags him out into the forest at the same time in this they're kind of written in a way that intercuts the two that we're getting oscar fantasizing about stabbing his bully johnny to death and the fantasy is written as if it is actually happening and these two things go on at the same time where you're almost unclear like what's really happening what's not are they both killing somebody or is this about one murder like i don't know i felt like it was written in a way to try and sort of blur those lines deliberately um and then it's revealed later that instead of stabbing johnny as he was fantasizing about he was actually stabbing a tree right but then he starts to think like did I, did my stabbing of the tree end up killing somebody because he finds out somebody died at the same time right yeah and so this this is like kind of our introduction to these characters or at least like uh, the core story that we're getting early on and that's setting up for a very different kind of story than than I'm used to, I feel. And uh, I like the way that the prose is obviously playing with us, right? Like that that misdirect was cool. It, it, it ended up being really rewarding once he was like the next day, he's like, I, I, did I do that? What kind of dark power do I have? And, um, and you know, the, and then the fallout of that murder, like the whole town kind of is like, oh, shit, there's a murderer Oscar's mother is like worried about him and telling him to, to, you know, stick to the grounds of their little complex there. And that kind of starts us onto the story of Oscar and Eli meeting. Yeah. So that's what happens next, right? They meet, they meet outside this like jungle gym and he finds out that this is his neighbor. Eli is walking around in the snow underdressed and jumps from like a really high height and seems like uh, so there are certain hints early on that maybe there's something supernatural going on with Elay. Um and then we've seen some of these interactions between Elay and Hawken and we get the sense that Hawken is sort of posing as Elay's father or maybe even grandfather um but is actually in some really weird fucked up relationship where some seems like some sorts of physical affection is being given and in, in return he is taking care of Elay and providing blood through these murders um and they have to move from town to town when like he starts the police start figuring out what's going on um and start closing in this gets into the reveal that we get to that yeah. that Hawken is this pedophile and that's part of it for him is he desires Eli, it seems. And there's like some exchange of touching or something as as a form of payment for doing these murders and things like that. And um, Hawken is also like we, Luke said earlier, he's like this teacher who's kind of dealing with his grief of like the things that he does. And he tries to stop these urges and we're in his mind and it's all super fucked up. And then we get to the scene that was just like started to be like the whole world of this story, like shattering for me. I was like, holy fuck, this is a different kind of story than I thought the film was. 
he like seeks out this these like child prostitutes and oh, yeah. it was fucking dark that was that was really tough to get through yeah for sure um one thing that i think this book is is doing is it talks about a couple different times it talks about love and it kind of talks about like how people have like true loves that transcend and how who you'd give anything for and that's it's like commonly held to be a positive thing right that we hold up in society and say yeah that's a great thing love is love is you know this beautiful thing and this book is like a refutation of that in a way because hawken knows that he is in love with someone who he shouldn't be and elay is also like not a victim here i think i, I want to also make that clear and if anything hawken is a victim of Elay's in a way, right? Yeah. Well, it's come to be revealed that Elay is like hundreds of years old. Elay's couple hundred year old vampire who's who's in the body of a child and still ha- kind of has the mind of a child, and that that is something that I think is interesting. Like the brain has stopped developing. The temperament of a child is yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's because physiologically, like the brain hasn't developed past that age. So even though Elay has been alive for this long, you know, he's stuck in this headspace and, and, and it's kind of eternally young in that way anyway um but he is manipulating hawken i think and, and he knows like he can use this predilection to make hawken do things and turn turn hawken into a murderer and uh do things that it seems like hawken wouldn't have done otherwise um now i think it's maybe debatable but that, that's kind of the way i read it and and that's when i say that it seems it's written with empathy that's what i mean it's like it seems like the author is trying to say, like, yeah, as fucked up as you find Hawken to be, this relationship he's in with Elay is actually really fucked up and has made him worse. And he has a lot of guilt about it. And um, he makes me feel kind of bad for him. Like, he's so pathetic and powerless in, you know, at his own sort of predilections, but also powerless in this relationship because he's so in love with Elay that he would do anything. This uh, is part of the story that was that that I found to be difficult for me to because I know that the author is trying to to build this empathy and I saw that there but still felt that I couldn't empathize. I still felt that even if this Eli It's a challenge, right? Like it's challenging the reader. Well, even if this Eli relationship wasn't going on, do I believe that he wouldn't take advantage of a child who wasn't also getting some sort of like symbiotic relationship out of it like Eli is? You know, like he would Yeah, no, I think I mean, it's he clear. was he was already a pedophile. Right. And I think it's clear that he would continue to be and so for Was he a ritualistic m- multiple murderer? No. So is there is is that you know is that significantly worse you know <laughs> it seems like it to me um, to me the the I don't know man sometimes I felt like the pedophile <laughs> stuff was worse in a sense because we see this uh, we come to find that Eli is well this, it's like an escalation right like it's 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 leaning into his worst impulses whereas instead you know maybe he needed to be in prison or maybe he needed to be in a mental hospital or something to help dial back those impulses and instead Eli has set up a situation where nurturing and and encouraging and in fact accelerating a lot of that stuff yeah so the thing that t- kind of turns this on its head for me is when we realize that this act by Eli is for survival and not for being a predator against people it's sort of due to the fact that like and there's this gray area there too because it's like is this character is Eli 
reveling in that that murder and that killing sometimes or is it just the vampire tendencies where like they're they need to feed and once they do it's like a pleasurable experience you know that's such a good question and i think that is that is at the heart of this book it's ultimately what is asked because this book is also challenging us you know as we move through it and this is something i want to ask you about as we go forward but like how do we feel about elay as a character is elay a bad is Elay an antagonist? Is Elay the villain of this story, or is Elay a hero, or is Elay like purely neutral? Like, what is Elay? Yeah, how do we feel about Elay as a character? I, I think I, I think w- what it comes down to for me, and I think the only correct answer is just all of the above. It's like you know, <laughs> you can't you can't have a character like this that isn't all of those things. That makes the character interesting. Yeah, like you know what I mean. Like having a character that is so dark and twisted and and has done so many awful things yet you feel empathy for again you feel because it's this is an affliction that was um forced onto elay um and can't be controlled self-preservation is the it it is hard to fault people sometimes for like self-preservation right like things people will do to survive if they have to and that's ultimately what Elay is doing to some extent well let's revisit this So let me read another paragraph of summary here. Hawken serves Elay, whom he loves, by procuring blood from the living. He struggles with his conscience and chooses victims whom he can physically trap, but who are not too young. Elay pays him for doing this. Hawken offers to go out one last time if he can spend a night with Elay after he gets the blood. Elay says that Hawken may only touch him. Hawken's last attempt to get blood fails, and he's caught. Just before capture, he intentionally disfigures himself with acid so that the police will not be able to trace Elay through him. When Elay finds him in the hospital, Hawken offers his blood. Elay drinks his blood, but a guard interrupts them and Elay fails to kill him. To avoid becoming a vampire, Hawken throws himself out of the window to the ground below. Despite this, he is reanimated as a mindless vampire driven for a desire for Elay. Hawken relentlessly pursues Elay, trapping him in a basement where he tries to rape him. Elay fights him off and escapes. Later, the wounded Hawken is destroyed by Tommy, who accidentally gets locked in the basement with him. Okay, so we've just intru- introduced Tommy out of nowhere. Um, it seems like this this plot summary is really focusing on on our main characters, but we have other characters who have plot lines playing out, including Tommy, who's like a friend of Oscar's. Um, who has his parents and he has um, there's Stefan the the detective we got um, Virginia who around this time gets gets uh, bitten and starts to turn into a vampire herself um, so there's a lot that is going on here that um, I'm realizing is sort of omitted from this and now I think some of this might be in this next paragraph it is okay so we'll get back to that but let's focus on what this part focuses on maybe and that's Hawken and his journey throughout the novel, even if it's not necessarily chronologically accurate. Um, he is tortured. And he, not only does he absolutely wreck a lot of havoc and, and kill a lot of people, but he is also put through hell. I think it's safe to say, perhaps more than any other character, I think more than any other character in this book, um, he horribly disfigures himself with acid it's described in really disgusting ways. Um, he, this this fate he suffers where he is reanimated as this sort of like mindless 
vampire zombie is horrific. Um, he seems like almost unkillable at a certain point. He gets like smashed apart and yet his remains are still trying to like get up and, and continue, even though his heart has been destroyed. Like he, he is, I don't know, like something happens with him where he's almost on like another level of unkillable, um, for a while here. And it's horrific to imagine what's going on to him. And it, it makes him kind of tragic to me as much as he's, he's awful. Like, Ile has done this to him, right? Like ultimately, Ile is responsible for a lot of this stuff, and I don't know, man. It's it's tough because you, f- I feel sorry for him, and even though he's so awful. I, I that's I that is the intention of the author for sure, and like to I, I see it to an to an extent, but I continue to just be like, fuck this guy, man. I don't know. Yeah, I don't no, know. ultimately, fuck him. Yeah, but like, I think it's okay to like have a little bit of empathy, like for another human being. No matter what they've done, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think it's human nature to like, or at least good nature. Like you talk about like cruel and unusual punishment, right? Like there's a reason we don't take serial killers out and like flay them like the fucking Bruce Bolton or something. Like we don't do that anymore. And like maybe there are people out there who say we should, but like ultimately as a society, we've decided like we need to be better than that. We're just, you know, you know, maybe even if you don't believe in the death penalty, which is another whole, whole debate, like if they are killed, they're killed fairly painlessly because you know we have rules against cruel and unusual punishment right so even for the worst of people and this is like beyond cruel and unusual this is like the worst fate imaginable being yeah that was the and he he was like let me see how far i could push this character yeah to see if if people will feel empathy that's the that's the experiment that's going on by the author right yeah i think so um and i think it's successful i think that you do feel empathy for this disgusting character but this person would have done these unspeakable things with or without Ile's um, sort of influence on the situation. So in Maybe. a sense, I kind of still tend to feel like he gets what he deserves as, as awful as that stuff tends to be. Uh, it was, it was definitely like, I can remember the scene from the film too, like the, the acid scene and it's just fucking yeah. disgusting and it's awful. And uh, I don't remember this whole like reanimated zombie thing. I, I, I don't know if I'm just forgetting it, but like, I feel like, I feel like he falls from the window in the in the movie, and then that's the end of it. The end of it. It's been a long time since I've seen. We it. We should probably not speculate, right? Like, I feel like I remember it enough that we shouldn't talk about it. Yeah, we'll we'll see. But my point is, like, I was surprised. I thought he was dead when he fell out the window, and then he, there's this whole thing where he gets woke, like in the morgue. There's this like technician going down there to like work, and he, the, like in a very horrific scene, like there's this bleeding that's happening and then he's like oh i gotta go back and stop this bleeding and when he comes back in he's like getting up out of the gurney and he's like oh i'm gonna try and help you because he's like oh I, he must have survived he's not actually dead and then he gets attacked by hawken as this mindless sort of vampire zombie and then he just like wanders off through the woods and we even get the point of view of a squirrel at one point who's like looking at him yeah that was wild this is the kind of stuff where i was like I don't know, man. Like I've been told by so many people to like keep the number of POVs down, and you're in, you know, for a debut. And I'm like, thinking about I'm just writing and have, like I'm gonna have the point of view of a squirrel now, and just doing whatever. Like I mean, this was 2005, so maybe things were a little different back yeah, then. He's feeling a little squirrely the day he wrote that one. This feels like this feels like Stephen King because like we've talked about how his style is so like he does this omniscient where he like dips into different people's minds. And it feels a bit like that because we're dipping into so many different characters point of views. Like we get tons of side characters who get introduced just to have like a single part of the story. Now, you know, we, we get like, the receptionist in the hospital who, who talks with Eli at one point, like, and they're there. We get a whole thing from their point of view. And um, yeah, I don't know. That's not something that you see a lot of 
these days. I think that's like it's all kind of a throwback. It's something that Stephen King likes to do, but um, obviously he's liking it here. And, and you know, granted, some of these conventions are probably different in Sweden than they are in America. Right. You know, yeah. so that that might be part of it too. Hawkins' story ultimately leads to this basement thing, which made me feel again. I was like, that that's why I hate this character. Yeah, yeah. it's all justified in, in the end because he does become the villain. Yeah, but he's also like he's like left as pure id at this point. Like that's yeah. all that's left of him. Like, it's his base instinct. Yeah, and I think we we don't really get much from his point of view at this point because I think like the stuff that was like human left in him is now gone, and it's only that part of him, that monster in him. Um, that has been sort of harnessed by this this in, this uh, infection, which is like, I mean, kind of dealt with in a semi scientific way. Like it it like it's like a parasite that gets into your heart and like starts to transform it into like a separate brain. It was described at one point in a really creepy way. He gave credence to the way that you kill a vampire, right? A stake through the heart, and it's like that's because that's where the a, brain, a brain is of, in the, there. of the infection. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. Yeah, so uh, yeah, uh, that that's basically Hawkins' story. I think we can we can maybe touch on him a little bit more, but let's move on because there's a lot of these other side characters. So meanwhile, Blackberg local alcoholic Laika suspects a child is responsible for the murder of his best friend Jacques, whom Elay has killed for blood. Later, Laika witnesses Elay attack his sometime girlfriend Virginia. Elay tries to drink her blood, but Laika fights him off. Virginia survives, but starts turning into a vampire. She does not realize her infection until she tries to prolong her life by drinking her own blood and finds that exposure to the sun causes boils on her skin. Upon being hospitalized, Virginia realizes her transformation and kills herself in bed by deliberately exposing herself to daylight. That's not actually really accurate. I'm going to stop there (laughs) because I think a nurse opens the blinds. Uh, and, and kills her, but I think she like knew that that was going to happen and was okay with it. I thought that she asked the nurse to open it. Does she ask her to? Maybe that's what it is. But she doesn't. She's not the one who opens the blinds herself. Right. Anyway, um, but actually, before I even go on to other stuff, let's talk about Virginia because I think Virginia is actually a really yeah. interesting sort of side plot here that goes on where she gets infected with vampirism and we see somebody turn. I love this as a as a way for the author to or like kind of give us the perspective of what Eli has been through, right? Like the the transformation in this world and his... Explore vampirism in this novel and how it works. Exactly. And I thought that yeah. it worked really well for that reason. You know, I felt bad for, for this character, Virginia, of course. And then ultimately, like her choice to end her life rather than continue to feed on people is one that Eli could have made as well. Right. That is, I think, essential, right? Like as much as we want to give Eli the benefit of the doubt and say, oh, it's survival... You also see Virginia take another way and say, I'm not going to do this. Um, and th- it's mentioned at one point when Elay's thinking about the one other time he spoke to another vampire, how uh, that vampire told him that most of their kind don't survive or kill themselves. So that is something that is pretty frequent. Um, so Virginia also, like it's a, it, it, it's described in a way that I thought was a cool, almost like body horror kind of thing where... Just the like cravings, the blood, the disgust for regular food, um, things tasting wrong, and then the sun like hurting but not like catching on fire right away because it's not fully transformed. So like you, it takes you through the transformation in a way that I thought was really cool. Like that's the kind of stuff that is really interesting to read and I think is done so well in a book 
because you're getting all these sensory things. We're talking about how things taste mm-hmm. and how things feel and the smell. A lot of smells too in, in this in this novel. I noticed. Yeah, some of my favorite parts of the writing I think were around this stuff. I really yeah. like this stuff. And uh, the idea, of course, like uh, addressing the idea of can a vampire like drink their own blood to stay alive or something like that. Well, it's dark, right? And it's like self-mutilation. Like she's she's trying to drink her own blood, but you know that that's not going to work. And she knows it's not going to work. Right. But you got to try it. She keeps doing it because it's the only thing that like tastes good to her. Really dark Um, because she tries to like, you know, eat food and like drink stuff. But it's like nothing else. It works. It tastes gross. She spits it out. She tries to take medication at one point, but it's gross and she has to spit it out. And it does come back to like, so Elay early on has been telling Oscar, I'm not a girl. Now you can read that as Elay saying like, I'm actually a boy, but that's not what I think Elay is actually saying. Elay saying, I'm not a person a human, anymore. Yeah. I'm not human. I'm nothing. In fact, at one point says I'm nothing. And it's trying to say like, I am a monster. I'm not what you think I am. Um, but admittedly, and I think this is something that Oscar definitely picks up on and has like moments where he's really angry about Elay has been lying to him all along and has been lying about everything. And he's like, he realizes at one point gets mad. He's like, you are lying about everything. You're still lying about it right now. While I'm talking to you about it. Um, and Elay is sort of called on his shit, which is also like, I think a good moment. And, and it's something that I was like, glad to see from Oscar. Like he wasn't going to be completely blindly manipulated. Just like glamored by a vampire basically. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, no, you've been lying to me all along and I'm calling you on your bullshit. And they, they have, you know, weird like wrestling matches where they then kiss. And then whenever they kiss is when a lot of these flashbacks happens where he's like seeing some of Elay's former life. Elay is able to, I think, give people visions. Well, maybe. But also when they play um, tic-tac-toe. Now, I will say if you go first in tic-tac-toe, you actually can technically always win. Um, but um, Oscar wins like a bunch of times and, and against Eli, who's proven to be exceptionally good at puzzles. I think it's tic-tac-toe. It was a different game. I don't remember. But whatever it is, it's revealed that Eli says, I can just I can just see what you're going to do before you do it. And I thought like this was a hint of the shine. We want to talk about the oh. Stephen King influence. I think I think there's a hint that Oscar has some telepathic ability. And maybe that's why he's able to see the past when he kisses Oscar. He's able to actually peer into the past and see things. Could be it could be on his side. Yeah, and I thought it was Ule's side. I think it, it's setting up that maybe and like there's moments where he like kind of pictures things happening that he's not there for. And like I think there's a couple times where it leans into this idea of like maybe he has an extra sensory sight. I like it. Yeah, I just I didn't think about that. Which very Stephen King esque detail. Mm-hmm. Um, let me continue this this summary here. Attempting to avenge Virginia, Laika is thwarted by Oscar and Elay. Oscar eventually fights back and injures his tormentor, Johnny. Johnny's older brother, Jimmy, hunts down Oscar for retaliation. Oscar sets fire to the boys' desks, destroying a treasured photo album belonging to their father. They corner Oscar at night in the local swimming pool and try to drown him, but Elay rescues Oscar and beheads the two brothers. Elay and Oscar flee the city with Elay's money and possessions. We got the whole plotline with the bullies here, right? We get escalation, escalation, escalation. Then we see Oscar, who throughout the story has been trying to attain power. And one of the things that Oscar has done 
is feeling sort of emboldened by his interactions with Ile. We see him um, join this like strength cl- training club and start to just get a little more self-confidence. And so we start to see Ile's effect on him as being kind of positive, which again is like, it fucks with you a little bit because you're like, you know, it seems like Ile is a good influence on him, even though you're like, how can that be possible? I have another angle with Ile's intentions in this story. Clearly, Ile has found this uh, Hawken person to be his servant and yeah. and get blood and that kind of thing. And there's a reading of the story where Ile all along is setting up Oscar to be the next Hawken, basically, and try to manipulate. Absolutely. And, and, and one of the key elements that supports that is there's a moment when they're having the argument in the um, Ile's apartment where Oscar says... For a moment, he sees a different Elay inside this one. I can't remember the exact quote, but and that version um, is ancient and smiling and laughing at him because of what it's doing. And if that is an extrasensory, like we just talked about, is that a moment of actual extrasensory perception? Is he seeing some sort of truth there? Is there an ancient vampire within Elay who is manipulating. Now, maybe both can be true. Maybe the infection itself could be doing that, even while the sort of child that is Elay animated actually does feel genuine love or friendship or whatever it is for Oscar. Maybe both can be true, but it does make it a lot more complicated. And and again, how we actually feel about Elay is open for debate. It really is. Whether it's this this premonition or this this vision that Oscar is able to see, or it's this idea of a two hundred you know centuries old being, uh, and the the kind of influence and cunning that they would have in comparison to a twelve year old person boy, and and the way that like just that like the the difference in in like intellectual prowess like how how are you going to compete it it would basically be like some monster that's just like waiting you know to like take advantage of it to someone like that so whether either way it is the same it's the same sort of um, motivation in essence yeah i mean this this 200 year old demonic being almost that's at the heart of elay might absolutely be laughing and and just willing to manipulate um one thing we should talk about is how how the vampires powers manifest here because at different times we see Ile actually grow claws from hands and feet to be able to like climb and then at one point some sort of membrane um, on the arms I think and then uh, Ile leaps off of the roof of the hospital and then doesn't hit the ground so the implication is maybe flu I think so Um, so I don't know if that was like kind of a bat-esque moment um, but it seems like literally able to transform. And I think there's even a part where Ile thinks like all all he has to do is like imagine a different version of hands and then like it comes to be. So there's definitely some like shape shifting power uh, for the vampire who is also quite strong and and vast. I, I like the way that was all described, right? Like that it lines up with the like legend of vampires enough, but also... Uh, it, sh- it it shows like an attention to realism, right? Like it feels like trying to figure out a way that this could actually work if it was going to be re- a real thing. Right. And how someone like this could stay hidden and not be, you know, how, how you can't have claws and wings walking around. So right. there's got to be a, a, some, some way to, to hide it. 
it also really reveals the monster that is Elay mm-hmm. ultimately, right? Like as much as it was me at times might want to think of Elay as a person. It's like, no, not a person. <laughs> we have talked about all these different avenues that you can read the story in, and I think that they're all valid. But I do want to say that for the most part, when I was reading about Oscar and Elay's relationship, that I did think it was more well-intentioned than this like dark stuff. What, how did you feel about that? It feels like it is. It's presented as if it is. They seem like they have a genuine friendship. It seems like Oscar sort of reminds Elay of what it was like to be a child. Um, they have moments where they're like actually kind of cute together. Um, you know, I, one you know, this isn't necessarily cute, but there was one part that I, I uh, think does make it into the movie later. But like I, I thought it was a really excellent piece of writing where Oscar is asking Elay to go out with him like you want to go out together or whatever and um Eli has to check and see like what that means to to oscar and ultimately it's like it doesn't mean anything you just say that we are and then we are and then and so like Eli at first is like no and then like when he when he learns that he's like okay yeah <laughs> um and and it's it's interesting because like why so the implication is that Elay was willing to like do things with Hawken to sort of pay him for his services, right? In in like a gross way, but didn't seem like was willing to go all the way. And was that some sort of like self, you know, didn't want to, or was it not wanting to infect Hawken? Because I got the implication also maybe that um this vampirism could be like sexually transmitted. And um, Elay was being very careful about not tra- not trying to transmit it to people because it seems like it's actually transmitted fairly easily. Right. I would. I thought it was honestly more the manipulation factor. Like if if uh, Elay ever. That's the way I originally thought of it, but I felt like this time reading it for whatever reason, I got some sense that maybe Elay was also being careful not to infect him because if he infects Hawken and turns Hawken into a vampire, Hawken can't serve him. Right. In the way that he needs him to. So there's like this inherent like can't let you go, you know, where you want to go because it's going to potentially turn you into a vampire and I can't have that because then you don't you're not useful to right. me anymore. I guess not for the preservation of not for actually caring about the person, but more right. for the utility preservation thing. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like there's a version of Elay that is super like analytical and like calculating and evil. To me, the answer lies somewhere in the middle. Like it's both. Yeah. It's it tends to be both many times. Um, okay, so then we get this final scene at the at the swimming pool, mm-hmm. and um, we talked about the stuff with the author and, and his father drowning. So we know that like this is probably a very difficult scene to write for him and um, Oscar, which I think it's clear that I would expect um, this is somebody that the author really empathizes with and identifies with. Um, Oscar is probably around the age that he would have been in the eighties, um, in living in the same exact town. And then, yeah, these bullies hold him underwater and their their thing is they're going to hold him underwater for five minutes. And then if he doesn't come up or if he can if he can survive that, I guess, then they won't like kill him. I don't know. Unclear. They're just doing awful bully things. Um, very dangerous. Right. And potentially could be about to kill. It seems like probably would would drown um, Oscar here. And then in our in a seemingly heroic move, uh, Elay comes to the rescue and decapitates these two bullies now we don't see it as a direct scene like we do in the adaptations so that was interesting that we actually kind of cut away from it and then get it as like a description after the fact of what happened this is the last thing we see Elay do does that 
change how you feel about Elay? Does that does that tell you something about their relationship? I, I definitely think that informs like ultimately how we because there was Oscar is dealing with should I go along with Elay? Should I because they're going to leave together, right? Yeah. And there's like a lot of that time spent sort of mulling that over and trying to figure that out, and then. I be, like Elay coming to the rescue in this moment is showing like I think a compassion for Oscar that I didn't see Elay having for Hawken. I agree. Yeah. It seems like it seems like their relationship is different, although you could argue that the result is going to be much the same. Elay will have a new caretaker and someone who's going to probably end up murdering for Elay at some point. Yeah. But I also would argue that most when you get into a relationship you're also buying into that right like you're you're willing to be murder for the other person you're willing to be caretaker (laughs) for the other person you're willing to do you know there's a mutual sort of like willing to drain somebody of their blood for them (laughs) exactly there's a symbiotic (laughs) relationship that's created but uh one of the things that i that i love the vampire details is the because the story is literally called let the right one in and it's obviously referencing that's that song that you talked about but also the idea of vampires needing to be invited in and then yes. this last moment where Eli is like tapping on the window and then one of the one of the bullies or somebody in there allows Eli to come in. Yeah, I think she, I think Eli even says invite me in. Right. And like convinces this person to invite to invite him in. And and this is how come up a few times we see um, at one point Oscar um, Eli says invite me in and, and Oscar says no. Like what would happen if I didn't? And then Eli demonstrates it by actually walking in and closing the door behind him and then starts bleeding from the eyes and like and like getting physically weak. I remember like, the scene as well um, from the film. Yeah, that's a cool scene. Um, again, something that I hadn't seen before. It, it also points towards that truly supernatural. Like as much as we've been getting hints of science, like maybe this could be a disease. I think this is the thing that, like, there's no non-supernatural way this could really work, right? Unless it was psychosomatic and it was something that, like, Elay had internalized. But I don't know. That's just, that's a stretch. It feels like there is something truly supernatural going on here. There's some sort of rule about invitation. And to me, that also speaks to the metaphor of vampirism. So I wanted to ask you, like, if we wanted to step back and say, like, what what is vamp- what does vampirism represent in this book why vampires why why in this situation is vampirism the call for it the the way it is and people deal with it and it's passed on from person to person like what does that all represent because like it can represent different things in different versions of stories and different people over time but like for this book what did you think it, it, it yeah great question i hadn't really you know i hadn't really thought about that yet um I mean, I guess you can think of it as just on the surface from Oscar and Elay, the relatability of isolated, not feeling like um, you belong anywhere. I think that that's where Oscar was at the beginning of this story. And then finding kinship between these two people who, because obviously Elay needs to be isolated from the sun and can't become social and interact with humans and be part of humanity. And uh, I don't know, maybe there's something there, but that seems very a very surface level analysis on it. Did you have something? I mean, I'm just kind of spitballing here because honestly, like this is it's it's an open question, I think, and it's something maybe we can revisit. But vampirism is inherently similar to rape. It is a non consensual act, usually. Um, and you know, I mean, we've seen situations where someone's like, "Yeah, bite me," but like 
other than that, it's typically, you know, feeding on someone to sustain yourself. Um, there is something sort of intimate and sexual about it. There's exchanging of body fluids. Um, so to me, it's like it's 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 often tied to sexuality. And in here you have it with these like childlike characters. So you could also equate it somewhat with pedophilia here. But maybe beyond that, just like transgressive relationships, um, relationships that don't fit society norms, societal norms. And and when you start doing that, you're like, well, what is what is that? If that's true, then what is this book saying about that? I don't know. And I don't know if that is accurate, but I think it's like there to be talked about. And it makes this an interesting piece of dark art to talk about and like try and figure out what it's trying to say. Um and ultimately, what happens at the end, right? We see Oscar happily on the train with this luggage that seems like maybe one of these actually has Elay in it. Um, and they're leaving together on this train, and we see this conductor like looking at him, like, I can't believe he's so happy, you know? And so there's like this moment of like joy from him. Now, is that joy something we should feel bad about? And we should feel like, oh, he doesn't know, but he's actually just ruined his life, and this is not going to end well for him. Or should we be cheering him on? Yeah, he got to leave with someone he's truly in love with, his his new beloved, right? Which echoes what happened to Hawken and think about what happened to him. So I don't know, man. It's 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 messy and like I don't know how to ultimately feel about this. Like it doesn't seem like a happy ending as much as even when I watched the movie, I remember like wanting to feel like it was a happy ending for Oscar and and Eli, and you kind of wanted to see them together because there's like a part of us that wants to see this love flourish, but Everything about this story is also telling us how dangerous this love is, how destructive it is, and how um, maybe we shouldn't be looking at it as a positive thing. I'm right there with you. I think that the, the this overall tone of the story and that idea of like it's not super hopeful um, yeah. kind of still leaves you melancholy at the end of the story. Like you're not it's not this like triumphant, happy thing, although. I don't know. I think you can you can kind of look at it from a surface level too, and just be like, "Oh, they met, they fell in love, and you know, one's one's hundreds of years old, one's twelve, but they understand each other." But like, does the trauma that e- that um, Oscar is facing, the bullying, does that make him vulnerable? And is that something that Eli's just like preying on? Because it comes down to the question of like, is Eli a two hundred year old dude like preying on a young boy, or is Eli a two hundred year old child and should be viewed as such? I don't know. Right. Uh, open to interpretation. <laughs> yeah, it's fucked up, man. And um, I think it it is taking vampirism and making like almost the most fucked up things you can imagine with vampirism and trying to say like, all right, now that we're doing that, how do you feel about it now? Because like for the longest time, we've viewed vampirism as like sexy, like you got the dashing, you know, handsome vampire. There's sort of an allure to it and. You know, you got Twilight, and you got like all these different kinds of like romantic vampire things, and then you have this, where it's it's you know aged it down to an inappropriate age, and then you have an, this like adult Hawken character, and like it makes it as fucked up as it can, and then it's like asking you like how do you feel about it now, <laughs> and uh, it's effective in just being a memorable story that sits with you and asks you some uncomfortable questions. You know, and I don't know the answers to them, but I I think that is that itself makes this a interesting piece of work. Yeah, I think that that's what it's asking for too, right? It's, it wants to start conversations like this. It wants you to think deeper than the surface level and re- have different interpretations. And 
Um, it's definitely one of those stories that I appreciate for that fact. Like I said before, it goes to some dark places, but the journey is worth it to me. Um, like, you know, I'm someone who can read this kind of stuff and not have it affect me in, in certain ways. So I enjoyed well, it. Well, I could see someone reading it and saying that this is incredibly transphobic. Um, yeah. And because there's this whole like genital mutilation plot and like identity and like gender it's all really messy and like I'm not someone who would be able to defend. I'm not going to even try to defend this book in that way. Um, so take that all with a grain of salt. Maybe it is. I, I don't know. Right. All right, man. Yeah. So not a book for everyone, but um, ultimately it was it was enjoyable and in, in, in a dark way. It was, it was like there's something about these kind of stories that I will always find fascinating. I do love like a super bleak as hell you know, like Swedish murder mystery story. I'll watch those on sometimes when they crop up on Netflix. Seems like there's a new one every few months that comes yeah. out. Yeah. Um, and then you see their influence coming over into, you know, to our sort of crime fiction and um, vice versa. It's cool, you know, and ultimately I had a good time reading this. Excited to return to the original film. Now we're going to cover the Swedish film. Um, I, I, from everything I've reading, it seems to be the more highly regarded of the two. I did see that the new one is Matt Reeves, yeah. who recently did The Batman. I love Matt um, Reeves. So I was like, yeah. oh, interesting. Matt Reeves would have been interesting to talk about, but we'll, we'll probably tackle it as a bonus episode at some point in the I future. think we definitely will, yeah. Um, but we're going to focus on the on the Swedish version because I remember preferring that of the two that I had seen. Um, and I, I'm excited to revisit it because it's been a long time. And definitely now that I've read this book closely, I'm really interested to see what it what lies in wait for me before we end the episode also i wanted to remind you that i'm going to be at worldcon in chicago uh from august 31st i think is when i arrive to september 5th i have multiple panels i'm on and i have a reading so if you're going to be in chicago and you're curious about worldcon or if you're going to be at worldcon look me up on the programming come say hi i'd love to say you know to talk to you come to my reading that would be awesome if you like this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating or review on whatever platform you chose to listen on, uh, Apple Podcasts or otherwise, Spotify, anything like that. It really helps to get the word out there and to keep this podcast growing. We have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash ink to film. And on there we have bonus episodes. This project was a commission from our community. Should have probably said that at the beginning of the episode. Um, we do these quarterly projects that come out and uh, every quarter, and we have them voted on. This was the top winner, just beat out Fight Club, ironically. Uh, Fight Club keeps almost getting it. I think eventually it will get there, but we'll see. Um, and uh, if you would like to affect going forward you know, the things that we cover, the best way to do it is become a patron, vote in those polls. We have uh, bonus episodes that release on there, and we're going to be recording one this month on the 11th episode of Season 1 of Sandman. Uh, pretty soon um, that got dropped after we recorded our final Sandman episode. I think the same day or like the next day when it came out or something when we were releasing it, like that came out. And I was like, damn. It was really fun though. I love <laughs> that they're doing it that way. I can't wait to talk more about it because like, yeah, it's... I'm interested to see it. I haven't watched it yet. Yeah. In our episode, I talked about, I was like, oh, there's like some clips that have been released and there's clearly some other stuff going yeah. on here. And then like it dropped and I was like vindicated. I was like, yes, you were on the trail of it. Uh, right. I was surprised. Yeah. So anyway, I'm excited to watch it and, and react to that. And that'll be on Patreon patreon.com slash ink to film make sure to connect with us on social media we're on facebook twitter and instagram all of those at ink to film if you would like to get a copy of this novel or any of the novels that we cover there is a bookshop link in the show description and that would support our podcast um, you just click on those links go to the bookshop and you can get versions of sandman or any of the other stuff we've covered buy it on there and then we get a little bit of a kickback which is you know super nice and helps us keep the show going 
Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. Well, now we have contributed to the moral depravity and decline of society by covering such a dark and twisted piece of material. Yes. Um, we will revisit it again next week and do a little bit more of that, I guess. Um, and until next time, keep adapting.